Welcome to Saints. In this podcast, we'll be discovering and discussing fascinating insights to topics and events found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. This new four-volume narrative is a history of the Restoration. And now, Saints. I'm Ben Godfrey, and today I have two wonderful guests here with me in the studio. First of all, uh, a good friend and historian, Matthew Grow. Welcome, Matt. Nice to be here. And joining us again is our great friend, Shaylin Back. She's recently had an opportunity to read Volume 1 and will share her thoughts and questions. Welcome, Shaylin. Hi, thanks for having me again. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about Chapter 42 of Saints Volume 1, which is called Round Up Your Shoulders. Maybe we can just set the scene a little bit for uh, our listeners and remind them there's a, a member of the church named William Law. Matt, who's William Law, and and what's he been doing with the church as this chapter begins? So William Law is a member of the First Presidency. He is a convert to the church from Canada and has become very influential in Nauvoo. And this chapter picks up uh, in November 1843, and by this time, there's some clear tension between William Law and the other members of the First Presidency that is eventually going to lead uh, William to leave the church. So it's a difficult subject, but right. William is excommunicated. Right. And the reason for him being excommunicated and, and being uh, leaving the church is what? Well, there's a couple of things going on. So first, uh, there are records from the time in which William confesses to adultery. Uh, So that's definitely part of what's going on. Uh, The other part is that uh, William Law has come to oppose some of the doctrines of uh, the church as they are being introduced in the Nauvoo era. One of those in particular is uh, plural marriage, which William uh, opposes. Let's listen to just a clip here from, from Saints that kind of describes this moment. Now William's heart began to burn with anger against Joseph. In late December, he and Jane stopped meeting with the endowed saints. Jane advised that they sell their property quietly and simply leave Nauvoo. But William wanted to crush Joseph. He began plotting secretly with others who opposed the prophet, and not long after, he lost his place in the first presidency. We have some real indications at this time that William is plotting with others. Uh, to attack Joseph, uh, not just verbally, uh, but physically as well, right? And so, so you see just real anger within William Law and this real desire to bring Joseph down. And do you think that's what motivated him was anger or did he have something in his history or past that, because I feel like his, his wife was like, oh, let's just leave it alone right. and let's leave, you know? And I feel like that's probably what a lot of people would do, but I wonder what made him feel like he would need to crush Joseph, as he says. Yeah, it's such a great question because, uh, you know, throughout saints and throughout this early period of church history, you do have a number of people, prominent leaders leave the church, right? And some just kind of go quietly, mm-hmm. like Jane Law wanted to do, and others uh, become uh, so engaged in uh, bringing opposition to Joseph to the saints, right? So that's one of the real things that happens in the Missouri era is that some of the past leaders of the church want to want to oppose the saints, want to even even help the, the mobs and, and, and those sorts of things. It's really difficult, I think, to get exactly what's going on in his head. Hmm. And I kind of wonder if he's maybe embarrassed. I don't know. Yeah. I was just wondering if that's something when I was reading. Great question. 
So in addition to this opposition sort of from within, Joseph and the saints continue to have this issue of having lost all their property in Missouri, and, and they're continuing their efforts to try to get some sort of justice for that. Right. Amidst that, Joseph announces his candidacy for the president of the United States. Matt, <laughs> tell us what's going on here. Right. I mean, from our perspective, this is really difficult to understand, right? Like, what is Joseph doing? Is he, uh, you know, some people have looked back in history and said, this was, must be Joseph grasping for power and and, and, and kind of seeking ever, uh, ever greater power. But you really do have to understand that context of the saints being driven from Missouri. I mean, that never leaves Joseph's head uh, in these years in Nauvoo. How do we both get our property back? Can we get some redress? Can we get compensated for our losses? And how do we stop those things from happening again to us, right? So there's the two things. How do we get compensated for what we've lost? And how do we protect ourselves in the future? Because we know that we're still an unpopular religious minority in the United States. Let's listen to another little clip here from the book that that talks about this moment when Joseph's deciding to, to run for president. Frustrated by the candidate's unwillingness to help, Joseph decided to run for president of the United States himself. Winning the election was unlikely, but he wanted to use his candidacy to publicize the grievances of the saints and champion the rights of others who had been treated unjustly. He anticipated that hundreds of saints would campaign throughout the nation on his behalf. Matt, as I, as I read this, I kind of was asking myself the question, was, was Joseph's candidacy... Was he the first issue candidate? I mean, we see that today. We have candidates who run on various platforms simply to get their message out. Was Joseph ahead of his time a little on being an issue candidate, or, or was it was he really trying to run to win? So that's a, that's a great question. What do Joseph and the saints intend? I mean, certainly one of the things is to publicize the saints' grievances with the nation. And did he think he could win? I don't think he thought he could win unless there was some sort of divine intervention on his behalf. Right. Right? But the saints believed in miracles, and they believed that this was a step they needed to take. And who knows exactly where it would end up. One of the really great things, I think, about Joseph's candidacy is that he has a platform that he runs on. And it's not just rights for the Latter-day Saints, but it's rights for minorities in the United States. I mean, that's the idea. Right. We have suffered. Other minority groups have suffered. How can we have a stronger constitution, better protections for groups like the Mormons, uh, but others? So he's running uh, on a platform of emancipation of slaves, some sort of compensated emancipation. He sees other injustices in society. He thinks the prison system needs to be reformed. So there's all sorts of ideas in which he wants to reach out and help others. And in the rhetoric of the campaign, it's not just we want to protect the rights of Latter-day Saints, it's that we want to protect the rights of, of everyone. And I really love that because I feel like when we hear about Joseph Smith running for president, I mean, even when we brought it up, we all kind of laughed. Right. And because it does sound so, it sounds a little bit crazy, like you're never going to win. But right. I love that even though it was unlikely, he wanted to champion the rights of everybody who'd been treated treated unjustly, and he knew firsthand what that was like, and that the Mormons certainly weren't the only ones who were feeling that at the time. And so I just think that's amazing. I really appreciated learning more about that perspective. 
One thing I would just remind our listeners is there are topics that are associated with each chapter. And there is a topic for this chapter called Joseph Smith's 1844 Campaign for President of the United States. And in that topic, you'll actually see links to uh, General Joseph Smith's, uh, the, the pamphlet you referred to, Matt, his actual platform. You can read about the candidacy. And something that I found super fascinating is it really wasn't just PR, as I asked the question. They created, they actually elected electors in every state. There's no reason to have that if you don't actually expect them to vote. Right. So th- there's some really fascinating things you can discover in addition to the text of this chapter in this uh, fantastic topic called Joseph Smith's 1844 Campaign for the United States President. Yeah, so with with the campaign... I think it is important to understand that they understand the political realities. I mean, they understand that this is a real long shot. Right. Right. But they still believe it's important to get the message out. And I think there's part of them that believes, well, if God wants this to happen, right. he can make it happen. Right. It's an incredible part of the story. Another piece of the story that comes up in, in this chapter is a new organization that the prophet founds. It's at this same moment of his presidency that he creates a new group, and it comes to be known as the Council of Fifty. Um, I, f- I forget exactly. What was the original name, and, and who were the people that participated? Well, they called it the Council of the Kingdom of God. And originally, the, the, the Council of Fifty uh, consists of Joseph Smith. It consists of the Twelve Apostles, it consists of other church leaders in Nauvoo. But Joseph also makes it a point to have a handful of non-Latter-day Saints on the council. And this is a really interesting moment because on the one hand, he's running for president of the United States. But on the other hand, what if that doesn't work out? How are the saints going to be protected in their liberties? Well, he's exploring another option. And that option is maybe we need to settle somewhere else. And so when the Council of 50 opens, they say, we're going to look for a place to settle in California or in Oregon or in Texas. And so for contemporary uh, readers, well, that's part of the United States, right? Right, right. (laughs) We're used to those names being states. But not in 1844. Each of those places is outside the United States. So they're looking elsewhere where they think they can go and settle, a place where they could be, in their minds, kind of the first settlers where they could create their own government, a government of the kingdom of God. Is this an ecclesiastical council? Is it a community council? Is it something in between? What does that sort of mean? Because you said there were non-members that were participating. Right. And so it's something in between. The intent of the council is to take care of the temporal aspects of the kingdom of God, not the ecclesiastical aspects, so they're not ordaining officers and they're not taking care of church business, but it's more how do we establish a system of government, how do we protect the saints so that they can practice their religious freedom. And one of the interesting things is that there are these non-members on the council, and Joseph Smith says very strongly that he invites non-Mormons onto the council because in the kingdom of God, as he sees it, everyone has liberty. You don't have to be a Mormon. Everyone gets their religious liberty in the in this idea of the kingdom of God. So was that the appeal for the non-members to be on the council? Is Were they part of other religions? 
Yes, so they that, like, were. were maybe being oppressed too, or uh, you know, it's it's kind of hard to understand the the motivations of these three men who joined the mm-hmm. council who aren't Mormons. We don't know a lot about them. You know, I, they were people who were friendly to the Latter-day Saints and I think uh, were interested, wanted to help. You you mentioned they were thinking about other places to go. Now, right. I think for a lot of us, that's going to be surprising. I'm sort of used to this idea of, you know, Joseph was killed at Carthage Jail, Brigham Young loads the wagons and head to the Salt Lake Valley. Like, it, like that's just, it was preordained that that's how it would be. Right. But what we're seeing here as we discover this history as they discovered it, they actually were looking at other places. Right. And, and where were those and, and why? Well, I think this is a great story of how revelation comes to the church, to the prophet, right? So Joseph Smith didn't know in March 1844 that the saints should end up in the Salt Lake Valley. That's going to take them a couple of years to really figure out. And what do they have to do? They have to explore the options. Right? So they're going to go somewhere. Well, let's, let's check out Texas. So they send someone to talk with Sam Houston in Texas and say, hey, do you have some land where a bunch of Latter-day Saints could settle? So they actually investigate these options. They send out missionaries. They send out explorers to uh, investigate the options. They buy maps. They talk with uh, other explorers. And gradually, they eliminate possibilities until after Joseph dies, it takes them another probably 18 months or so before they really begin to zero in on an area that they know is the Valley of the Great Salt Lake. This is so fascinating to me because I feel like they just packed up and kind of arbitrarily went somewhere that they felt like was going to be a good place. So this is amazing. Right. So, right, Revelation only comes once you gather all the information. Mm -hmm. And Brigham has this moment in the Nauvoo Temple uh, a couple of months before they leave Nauvoo where he says, I now know where the spot is. So he does get kind of a confirming revelation at the end, uh, but they've got to go through the whole process. There's great quotes in this book, which has been published now by the Joseph Smith Papers. It was the, the, the minutes of the Council of 50 that talk about settling in the Rocky Mountains. And so right. we, we know that was a, a possibility. Right. But I'd heard this phrase, information precedes inspiration. Right. And it's fascinating to me to know that like that goes all the way back to to Nauvoo. Right. To to Joseph. To that's how it works. Right. And and the other part of how it works is this idea of a, a council system. So this is a council of fifty men, more or less. And the way they, they actually sit in a big circle, the head of the council sits kind of at, at, at the front of the circle. So Joseph or Brigham it kind of sits. And then the men sit according to their age all the way around the circle. And they have this idea that everyone should be able to weigh in on every issue. So if you imagine like a ward council with like 50 people <laughs> weighing in. But, you know, Joseph and Brigham make this big point that hearing all of these perspectives is really important that the right decision can't be made until all the voices are heard and until unity comes about through the council process. Matt, I'm going to get this wrong, so you got to correct me because I know I know you know this. There's a moment in the Council of 50 where they're sort of self-congratulating each other of how wonderful things are going, and they're, they're kind of being what we would call today yes-men. Right. And how, how did Joseph take to that? What did, what did he tell them? 
He said, you know, maybe I should pull up the actual quote and get it right. <laughs> so Joseph tells the men there to speak their minds, to say what is in their hearts, whether good or bad. And he says he doesn't want to be forever surrounded by a set of dough heads, which he means a bunch of yes men, right? He doesn't want people to tell him what he think, what they think he wants to hear. Right. He wants people who come and truly kind of counsel together. And I think it's great advice, even for us right. still. Right. Well, and even in families, I'm just thinking of, like, my marriage. And then when yeah. my kids grow up, too, having, like, a family council is something I want. And I want my kids to feel like their opinions valued. And so I just yeah. think that's a neat story. Right. And, and, and so easily the authority figure in a council can shut down the discussion. Right. right? Th- that can happen so easily. And so you have to guard against it. Right. And mm-hmm. so Joseph was, was trying to guard against it. Because because that's even more accentuated when it's the prophets. Right, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Matt, this council, I think you said it continues after Joseph dies. Can you just give us a little explanation of what happens after Joseph to the Council of 50? And do we still have a Council of 50? Right, Uh, great question. So the Council of 50 continues to function in the Nauvoo era, uh, basically up until the time that they uh, leave Nauvoo, which is February 1846. And then when they come to Utah, there's no government here, right? There's no territorial government. It, quick, it pretty quickly becomes not Mexican territory anymore, but United States territory. But it takes a while to get a functioning government. And before that time, the Council of 50 uh, acts as a sort of government in early Utah. At, at that time, the council uh, basically stops operating until the 1880s. President John Taylor brings it back uh, for a, a couple of years and they meet. But after that time, the, the, the council ceases to function. So, so I think what is important is not exactly how the council function, but rather it's sort of the vision that they articulated about what the kingdom of God is, right? It's a place where people have liberty. It's a place where people try to instill righteousness. It's a place where Working together, uh, respecting other people is, is central to what the vision is. And I would just invite our listeners, um, if you're interested in learning more about the Council of 50, the actual Council of 50 minute book, the entire thing is transcribed and available with images at josephsmithpapers.org. You can, you can read the entire thing. And for many years, that wouldn't have been possible. The, the book wasn't publicly available. But as of a few years ago, the Joe Smith Papers published that volume, and it's, the entire thing is available to be, to be read and, and understood more if you're curious and interested. Right. For many years, the Council of 50 was one of the great mysteries of Latter-day Saint history because the minutes of the Council, and they, they kept very extensive minutes every meeting, weren't publicly available. They weren't available to historians or researchers until they were published a, a couple of years ago, and they're just a fascinating read. Well, so something that I notice in this chapter is that the endowment is fairly new. It's being, you know, given to to the different saints. And what stood out to me is that Emma was actually one of the people that was administering the ordinances. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? That's that's a great question. So when the endowment is first administered, Joseph administers it to only men at first. But part of what he says at that time is that the endowment will become available to all Latter-day Saints. And so they're, they're rushing to build the temple. But before the temple is completed, the endowment is, is administered to Emma. And then Emma participates in, in helping administer those really sacred uh, ceremonies to, to other women. And, and it's really meaningful 
uh, to Emma and, and these other early Latter-day Saints. They uh, meet together in, they call it, um, it's, it's called sometimes the anointed quorum, where men and women who have received the endowment meet together to pray and talk together and to, to lift each other up. And, and so it is quite unusual at this time that women would be involved in administering other uh, sacred religious ceremonies to other women. So is that, are you just saying in the church, in our church or in all religions? Was think, that just women weren't as in, very involved at that time? I think in terms of helping administer ordinances, that would have been very unusual in, in any church at the time. I think that's something that we take for granted. So that's neat. Thank you yeah. for sharing that. Matt, if we were to visit Nauvoo today, um, the historic site, are any of the places where the anointed quorum or the these in early endowed saints, where they received these ordinances and administered them, are they are they still around? Yeah, so most of the important sites in Nauvoo are either still there or they've been uh, reconstructed to, to some extent. The most important site in terms of early temple ordinances is, is Joseph Smith's Red Brick Store. Uh, which is owned by the Community of Christ. Uh, but on the upper floor of the Red Brick store is where Joseph first administered the endowment. That's, that's where they would meet at times uh, in, in the Anointed Quorum. It's where the Relief Society was organized. It's, it's really one of the great sacred sites of, of the Restoration. And again, I just invite our listeners who are interested in learning more about the Anointed Quorum or the Holy Order to review that topic uh, that's associated with this particular chapter. In particular, if you plan a trip to Nauvoo, it would be awesome. Read, read that because you might not get that same information from a tour that's maybe meant for just general audience. It will be great to kind of have some of that information with you as you uh, visit these amazing places that still exist uh, right there in Nauvoo, Illinois. You know, Ben, one of the other really great stories, I think, in this chapter is about Mary Fielding and, and Mercy Fielding collecting mm. money for the temple. The Penny Society. Right. Mm. Tell us about that. So there are these sisters, uh, Mercy Fielding and Mary Fielding. Mary Fielding is now married to Hiram Smith. And they are they have an idea about what can they do to help finish the temple. Because if you think about the undertaking of building the Nauvoo Temple, it was immense. I mean, there's nothing like it. And the labor that goes into it, the expense that goes into it, it is a massive undertaking for the saints. I, I, I think, you know, if you, if you go to Nauvoo and you see the temple, it kind of overshadows everything that's going on at this time. Even the, the tithing of labor, right? The, right. The members, was it every 10th day? They gave a day of their time to go and be a construction worker, right. basically. Yeah, and so, it's, it's, it's so Mary and Mercy feel inspired to start a penny drive. And the idea is that sisters will give one penny a week uh, so that they can buy glass and nails uh, for the temple. They go to Joseph. He says, great idea. Uh, let's do it. And so they, they create these penny societies in Nauvoo, but in some of the outlying branches as well, where... They'll get together and they'll sew so they can sell things to raise the pennies. Uh, and then they, they're doing this uh, in England and the eastern United States uh, so that they can participate in, in the temple. Which to me is amazing because as I was reading this, I was thinking about being, you know, in another country. Yeah. And you don't have the temple being constructed in front of you necessarily. And right. it's not like this tangible thing. And so I just think they had such amazing faith to be able to do that. And maybe they would never, they probably feel like they won't ever even be able to 
get to the temple and, and receive the blessings and the endowment. And so I just think that's so neat that they were sending pennies and that's a way that they could contribute to the temple. To me, it's, it is a really faith. It's a story of faith, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, how did these people give these funds for a temple that they might not see, might right. not be able to participate in? Makes me think that of that uh, scripture that says we should be anxiously engaged in a good cause. It seems like Mary and Mercy, they had the vision. Right. And, and this idea that revelation is scattered among us, right? So Joseph doesn't come to Mary and Mercy. Joseph doesn't come to the Relief Society and say, hey, how about a penny drive? Mm-hmm. Right? I love that. <laughs> yeah. Matt, this is a difficult time for the saints. Things are building in Nauvoo, but persecution is getting more and more difficult. We have these dissenters that are making life just miserable. It's starting to feel like Missouri again. Right. Joseph gives a charge to the 12. And I want to play just one little clip here from the book, and then hopefully you can give us a little context about where this came from and what it meant. Joseph sealed on the heads of the apostles all the priesthood keys they needed to carry on the Lord's work without him, including the sacred keys of the sealing power. I roll the burden and responsibility of leading this church off from my shoulders and onto yours, he said. Now round up your shoulders and stand under it like men, for the Lord is going to let me rest a while. Joseph no longer appeared weighed down. His face was clear and full of power. I feel as light as a cork. I feel that I am free, he told the men. I thank my God for this deliverance. Matt, how do we know this? Where, where did this quote come from? How do we know about it? Well, we know about this incident because many of the early apostles who were there later talk about it. So these exact quotes come from a statement written by Orson Hyde that's written within the next year uh, in which he describes a meeting that Joseph holds with church leaders, including at least the 12, perhaps others, and says this to them. So we have Orson Hyde very early on, but we have many of the other apostles. Brigham Young talks about it. Wilfred Woodruff talks about it repeatedly. Uh, Parley Pratt makes reference to it. And so it's, it's one of those things that we don't have someone who writes it down in their journal that day. And it's actually a little bit hard to even pinpoint the exact day. It seems like it happens in late March 1844, so towards the end of the time period that we're, we're talking about. But the apostles had great confidence that Joseph had given them the keys to move the church forward if he died. Is this what I've sometimes heard called the charge to the 12? Right, or the last charge uh, to the 12. It's amazing, you know, that we have these accounts and that they've been preserved and the original records of them are still around, available. If readers are interested, you can click on the footnotes. You'll find the sources. And in many cases, you can tap through and actually see either on the Joseph Smith Papers website or the Church History Library catalog, or other repositories, the actual original documents that make up the story that Saints is telling. Yeah, I think that's one of the real goals of the Saints Project, is to make this information available. And so if you have a question, well, where, where exactly is this coming from? Well, here are the footnotes, here are the sources, many of them have been digitized, you can just read them online. One of the great stories that I love that comes out of this moment 
happens a few months later in July 1844. So after Joseph is killed, the apostles are mostly spread out over the eastern United States doing what? Campaigning for Joseph, right? So, so they're spread out working on the presidential campaign, and they start to get rumors that Joseph is in trouble. They start to get rumors that Joseph is killed, and then they get confirmation from letters uh, from Nauvoo, and so now they know that Joseph is dead. And Brigham Young who is so devoted to Joseph Smith, when he receives the news, when he feels like the news is confirmed, he says, my head felt like it was going to crack. So just this moment of intense turmoil, intense turmoil, intense stress. And he said, for a moment, I thought, where are the keys? How can we possibly move the work forward without Joseph? Then he says he slaps his knee. It comes to him. The keys are here. They're with the twelve. Joseph prepared the way if he were to die so that the work could move forward. And the 12 had great confidence that that is what had happened. And I would just invite our listeners to join us again on our next podcast where we're going to learn more about the martyrdom. We're going to learn about uh, the church moving forward and uh, exactly what happens to the saints in the concluding chapters of Saints Volume 1. Thank you, uh, Matt grow for joining us today and Shaylin back for joining us also thanks to all of you for listening i just remind you you can always go to saints.lds.org where you can explore the latest updates topics videos and more you can read or listen to saints in the church history section of the gospel library app and finally to download this episode or to subscribe visit mormonchannel.org i'm ben godfrey thank you for listening thanks for joining us today for saints Join us again for our next episode, where we'll once again discover fascinating insights of church history found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the Latter Days.